The Curmudgeon Rock Report. Curmudgeon rhymes with bludgeon. Rock gods do it right. So do rock nerds. We're here for The Rock. 1965, 2021, doesn't matter. Crude, rude, yet somehow sophisticated. Welcome. Enjoy the show. Hello again, everyone. This is the latest and we think greatest episode <laughs> of the Curmudgeon Rock Report. Um, we've been doing this now for almost two months, and we're starting to resemble an outfit that actually knows what it's doing. And for the 12 uh, people in our regular audience out there, we give a shout out. Uh, come back to us in a year and we'll be uh, world famous and, uh, and, and, and widely lauded. Uh, but in the meantime, it's just a couple of assholes talking, uh, talking uh, shit about music and talking shit about each other. On that note, Arturo, how the fuck you doing? Good. Uh, greetings from South Korea. And I like to say first, um, the sound quality for my voice for today's episode, we're going back to the webcam mic. And there's a reason for that. Last episode was the first episode that we uh, recorded with me using a real microphone, and I sounded really well, right? I sounded really good and very clear. But apparently, because we use Zencaster uh, to record this podcast, and um, we're having three people uh, on uh, today's episode, uh, myself, Chris, and a guest. And for some reason, uh, Zenca- my Zencaster cannot pick up my mic if there are more than two people on. So I had to unplug the, the, the brand new mic and go with my webcam mic. So just for this one episode, we're going back to the old sound of me sounding like I'm phoning it in from some long distance location. Sorry about that to our loyal listeners, but that's just a little tech glitch that we just uh, couldn't overcome. So, uh, so for this episode, for this episode, I'm using the webcam mic. But starting next episode, we're going back to my clear, clean sounding new mic. <laughs> and 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 that might be the most unintentionally uh, funny line in this whole episode with you talking about sounding like you're long distance when you're in Guangzhou, South Korea. Uh, you know, for for our our, our American fan base, that's uh, that that that's quite a, a kick. Now. <laughs> You did mention a, a third person on the line. Yes. Uh, I'm, I'm, in, I'm intrigued. Uh, who is this third person? <laughs> this person is one of, you know, one of a very, very good mutual friend of ours and one of my closest friends. Um, he is live from Philadelphia. Uh, his name is Mike or Michael, if you want to be professional, Eisenstein. Uh, Mike Eisenstein is, uh, like I said, one of my uh, one of my oldest, closest friends, dating back to my years when I worked in the Nature Publishing Group. Before I became a, a, an English teacher, I worked in the publishing business, and he worked in the same company with me. Um, he is currently a freelance mus- uh, science journalist, and he has been working at this uh, position in this job for many years, and currently. He is under exclusive contract with uh, Johns Hopkins University for exclusive coverage of the coronavirus and all things 
COVID-19 related. That means interviewing scientists, doctors, medical health experts from all over the country, perhaps internationally. I'm, uh, I'm not even sure, sure about that. But uh, he's the closest thing we have to an expert on the coronavirus. And we need that because this episode is going to be a little more serious than the ones we've done before. Um, we're not talking about other bands and other artists or taking a shit on them or praising certain al albums or whatnot. This whole episode is going to be about the effect that the coronavirus has had particularly on the live touring uh, and concert industry. And Mike being the COVID expert who writes about this for a living and does a lot of it um, is the guest that we have on to talk about this. Mike, why don't you chime in? Hey guys, good to, have, good to be here. Long time listener, first time caller, and I appreciate the invite. Uh, I just want to say uh, I am not exclusive uh, Johns Hopkins. I am one of one of their one of their team, uh, but you can also uh, I do write also for Nature and uh, for Nature Biotechnology, so you can you can check out some of my stuff there. And uh, but yeah, I'm really really thrilled to be with you today. And this is you know, I'm really enjoying the show you guys are doing. I think this is a a great opportunity to. Uh, kind of bring some some science into the music mix. It sounds gotcha. much better if you are the exclusive Johns Hopkins guy. Come on, man. Oh, I agree. Yeah, I think they should fire everybody else and just put me on permanent retainer, but. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah, we can't puff you up too much, but you know, just the fact that you're uh, stringing for Johns Hopkins, I think uh, Arturo undersold that. that uh, uh, you, you definitely, from a journalism point of view, are in one of the best seats in the house uh, because John, Hop as far as I understand, and correct me if I'm wrong, the the two most valued data sources among scientists and journalists and uh, and watchers of these things are the CDC and Johns Hopkins. Am I am I wrong about that? No, oh, you're, you're you're not wrong. I mean, uh, yeah, there was also the uh, the late uh, and lamented the COVID tracking project, which was started by uh, some journalists. Actually, I think it was out of the Atlantic. Uh, mm -hmm. Alexis Madrigal and a couple other folks, uh, which was doing really amazing work in the absence of sort of a national <laughs> coordinated yeah. response in the United States. But yeah, Hopkins has been right on top of it. They've been really uh, monitoring the situation really well. So it's been yeah. it's been great working with them and uh, you know talking to their experts. They've got some really amazing people working there, and it's uh, it's great to have the opportunity to hear hear firsthand what they're up to. I got gotcha. you. So so that that's the credential uh, part of this. Uh, you know, more more personally, I understand you're a you're a North uh, Shore guy, right? Or uh, in or Worcester? No, I'm, I'm a Metro West boy. I'm a you know, the 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 the, the so-called Metro West area of Boston, uh, okay. a bunch of lesser, lesser suburbs uh, uh, within the sort of half hour you know train ride from from the city. Okay, I got you. And uh, my understanding is you're a Brown University guy too, correct? That is right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. Did, did my time in Providence for for a while. Uh, slowly making my way down the East Coast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, yeah. I, I'm, I'm imagining that uh, that means you're uh, uh, you can't help but be a Modern Lovers fan, correct? If you're if you're uh -huh. caught in the Boston <laughs> corridor. Yeah. Well, yeah, but I also, I'm, I'm, I know I'm going to get dragged for this, but I'm also an Aerosmith fan. I mean, I was just like, you know, old habits die yeah. hard. <laughs> there, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with early Aerosmith. Toys in the Attic and Rocks are two awesome, classic, all-time great records. Oh, their, yeah. their permanent I mean, vacation tour was one of the first concerts I ever went to. Oh, wow. Uh, when I, I must have been like, I think I must have been 14 or 15 
and my cousin took me because uh, my mom couldn't have been bothered and my, my dad couldn't have been bothered. But my cousin, Julie, who rocks, uh, she took me and my friend, Jeff. And uh, that was the first time I ever smelled weed. And it was it was quite an experience. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it was it was life changing. You know, yeah. you, you, you all of a sudden saw the world through green colored glasses. Yeah, the Worcester Centrum, man. Like, like life changed the Worcester Centrum that day. Yeah, yeah. God, God bless Worcester. Uh, my dad grew up in Springfield, Mass, and so I'm more of a Western Mass guy. So, uh, yeah, I miss my uh, my New England roots. I'm down here in Houston, Texas, now of all places. But uh, and that actually, uh, before we get going, you know, this is a good segue because we're going to be talking about live music and uh, our experiences as concert goers and contemplating the future. Arturo, what was your first concert? First concert I ever went to, oh my God. I think the first show I ever went to, this is going way back, it may have been Robert Plant uh, in Miami. In Miami, at the, uh, um, the, the, it's like an auditorium that seats about 5,000 people. I forgot the name of it. Um, but I saw him there. Um, I was when I was 12, so like I, it wasn't like I was you know, really hyped up for it. Um, the first concert I went to that I was really hyped up for that I really like that, that pumped my ads was seeing, uh, the Rolling Stones in Syracuse in 1994 at the Carrier Dome. Nice. Uh, that, that, that was a great show too. Cause they were still, they were older, but they weren't, you know, decrepit old like they are now. You know, they, they were like early fifties. So they could still move around and rock out. And that was a great show. <laughs> I like, I remember that one. Yeah. That was my, I call that my first real concert. You know, where I was excited to see it. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, I, the Aerosmith wasn't my first show. My first technical show was actually uh, Def Leppard uh, a year before that, and their on their. I, geez, I'm trying to. Remember, I think it might have been their Pyromania track. I remember. I think it was, no, it must have been Hysteria. It must have been the Hysteria. Track. Yeah, because Py Pyromania is like '83, so his, it must have been Hysteria when they, that terrible song "Love Bites" was everywhere. Yeah, but it was also pour some sugar on me yeah. and uh, yeah. animal. Like you know, they had all, they had so many hits off that. I, I saw them in, in Europe open for them, and <laughs> you know, Europe of course they had exactly one hit. So you know, they played the final countdown, and, and everyone's like going bananas. And then everyone's like, "Okay, you guys can go now. Can we have Def Leppard, please?" <laughs> <laughs> That's how it was when I saw the Stones. It was the Spin Doctors opening up for them. <laughs> Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> and they, they played all the only thing the only response they got was when they played those two hits and that's it and they, they were your classic two-hit wonder band which is a, which is a, an idea i have for a future podcast as well my uh first concert was uh prince at the carrier dome in 1985 wow. that's a hell of a uh, first yeah. show yeah with, with my father at the carrier dome so my dad is taking me and he doesn't know much about prince and i like prince at the time and I remember dad was having a good old time. He, he loved it. You know, he thought this was like the most entertaining thing in the world. And, and I am too. And here I am 10 year old kid and I'm thinking this is great. It's good. And, you know, you know, uh, that's back when you could still smoke cigarettes and maybe other stuff. You know? <laughs> and so there's, so, you know, you've got the purple lights, but it's like this purple cloud and it, uh, it's not, it's not effects. Uh, this is tobacco. Yeah. Uh, and I remember at one point during the show, Prince, I think it was like after When Doves Cry or something, he decides to strip butt naked and get into a tub. And here I am, this 10-year-old kid, like, oh, what? And my father just starts laughing. He's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> you know, what, yeah. What, what, what are you going to do? I'm bringing my kid to a show and the guy gets butt naked in the tub. But no, it was fun. It was just, you know, it was one of those things, you know, Prince was a, was a showman, but uh, 
uh, as I uh, a, a, a shameless uh, uh, plug. I still like Michael Jackson. Better, <laughs> so there you go. Well, we're all entitled to our wrong opinions. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, well, you're entitled to your own delusions, dude. At so. that time, even by the mid '80s, Michael Jackson was already past his prime, whereas Prince was still sus was sustaining his prime. You know, point, folks, we're going to talk about this much more in depth, uh, probably in about six weeks or so, and so. Prince versus Michael Jackson. I have Michael uh, Arturo has Prince. Uh, Mike Arturo, uh, Michael or Prince? Oh, Prince for lifetime achievement. Prince. Uh, you know, Michael Jackson has an amazing front half of his career. I mean, there's just he he's just got an unassailable front catalog. You know, from his Jackson Five work, Off the Wall, Thriller, Bad. Mm -hmm. I, he lost me after bad. I was not a big fan of Dangerous, and I just kind of like it was diminishing returns. Well, according Prince, according, to, according to a lot of little kids, Michael Jackson has a great rear half as well. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah. But, but, you know, Prince, yeah, Prince yeah. had lots of ups and downs, but I think, you know, over his yeah. career, and when you think about the artists that he nurtured in terms of like creating a new generation of protégés, I oh, think yeah. definitely had more of a lasting impact. And, and Dude, that fuck that fucker could tear a guitar apart. I mean, he was oh, just yeah. amazing. <laughs> uh, he, 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 he was great. I mean, he was a talent. But I mean, I'll I'll still take Michael for reasons I'll keep to myself now. It's 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 a tease. Uh, <laughs> I said, reach out to us at curmudgeonrock at uh, gmail.com and tell us who do you have? Do you have Michael or do you have Prince? And now back to regularly scheduled program. <laughs> uh, so, uh, like we said uh, at the top of the uh, show, we're here to talk about uh, coronavirus and COVID nineteen and this ongoing, seemingly never-ending uh, pandemic. And one thing that has been a commonality is the shutdown of the world, and this includes live music. Uh, it, and, and so we've been left with um, uh, lots of uh, garage uh, performances and uh, uh, phone, you know, phony baloney um, uh, DIY uh, video uh, at home uh, performances from like Metallica and, and others. And obviously, this has had a, a huge impact on everybody, but especially touring uh, musicians and uh, those of us that once in a while like to go to a show and uh, get get blasted out of the building and then buy a $35 t-shirt and then struggle to get home. Uh, you, you can tell that uh, sometimes I'm not the most enthusiastic guy about concert going, <laughs> but uh, a lot of people are, and they haven't been able to do it for a year or so. We wanted Mike to come on because we needed some adult supervision to sort of think about uh, these issues. And we're at the point now, uh, I was vaccinated last week. Uh, Mike was telling us that he gets, are you shot? Are you two shots or one shot? I'm doing Pfizer. I start shot one tomorrow. Okay. I did J&J &J last week. So I, I was one and done. Uh, so we're getting there. And so now we're at a critical point where we can look back look at where we are now and look at the road ahead as far as the restoration of live music and the concert business. And not only that, but the, the very livelihood and survival of the young generation of uh, rock and roll bands and uh, touring artists. So uh, on that note, uh, before I get into the questions, Mike, do you have any opening uh, thoughts or uh, any sort of uh, observations to share uh, uh, up front, any sort of uh, prologue? Well, I mean, I, I think you, know, you mentioned that a lot of artists have had to kind of adapt. And I think, you know, what, what it, what's been, 
you know, really cool is that for the most part, I think most musicians have recognized that this is sort of a necessary sacrifice for, for the, the greater good, the public health. I mean, most artists have, have tried to adapt and, and a lot of people have had to really suffer in terms of losing a major source of revenue. Obviously royalties aren't what they used to be. Streaming payments are, you know, criminally low and uh you know maybe if you're lucky you can get some kind of uh you know patron system some kind of subscriber system but you know what i I find interesting is you you know you you can tell a lot about uh an artist character you know the the ones that that chose to make a big uh big fuss about this and you've got your your uh kid rock keeping his uh his his bar and grill open in i think it was tennessee and uh smash mouth performing at sturgis and uh And of course, yeah. everybody's favorite racist guitar god, uh, Eric Clapton and uh, Van Morrison. Van Morrison, yeah, with their whole uh, <laughs> with their whole anti mask uh, shtick. Which hurts so, me. I'm a big Van Morrison fan, so that that that, that pains me to see him you know, go toe that line. Which that that really sucks. You know, that he's, I was uh, bummed about that too. I didn't see that coming. Like I, I you know, I'm gonna say I don't know a lot about Van's politics, but I just sort of thought of him as more. I read the Van Morrison biography by Johnny Rogan, who's like one of my favorite writers. Uh, he's a music writer, and uh, Van's never been that political. He's not really a political person. I mean, he's generally leftist, you know, as far as like you know, you know, freedoms and rights and stuff like that. But I think he's generally warped. I mean, he just. He's been a rich, famous person for the vast majority of his life. And I yeah. think that's completely clouded his judgment. He's seen things from his pristine Northern Irish castle and all his vassals below. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, wear masks. Oh, no, it's, this is taking money from my pocket. I can't perform anymore. Ah, you know? And I think he's seen that and he's not seeing the big picture. Whereas Eric Clapton is a traditional yeah. dickhead. So we, we expect that from him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And, and he's... he's I don't think he's a purely a racist guy. I just think he's an asshole. Want to be starting something is an unbelievable achievement and a damn near perfect song. The Ballad of Dorothy Parker is an unbelievable achievement and a damn near perfect song. An argument over whether Michael Jackson or Prince was the better artist is a bit like arguing over whether cookies and cream is better than chocolate chip cookie dough. But I'm sticking to my guns that Michael was the more brilliant and important of the two. Arturo thinks that's a ridiculous statement, and he'll soon share at least 100 reasons why he thinks he's right. In the meantime, you tell us. Is Wannabe Starting Something the better song? Or is it The Ballad of Dorothy Parker? Hit us up at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com with your truth on the matter. So let's let's really get into sort of the formal uh, discussion here. So when you look at the past year... um, how would you quantify or, or describe the impact uh, that this whole that this whole thing has has had uh, on these artists and really on the on, on the culture and 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 on uh, you know every, everything that's happened? I mean, it's kind of interesting. I was thinking about this before before getting on that. You know, the three of us are all kind of like we we sort of have radically different experiences of what the pandemic has been like. You know, are you sure. living? And South Korea, which was like kind of setting a gold standard for responding quickly and testing rapidly and kind of containing it. Uh, Texas obviously has uh, had their own approach. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's one way to put it. Yeah. And uh, and Philadelphia, I think, you know, we, we've, we've done well in some things and, and not so well in other things. And we've tried to be responsible um, in a lot of ways in terms of like closures and trying to trying to keep 
people from congregating indoors, but it's been rough. I mean, I was reading that uh, 88 music venues permanently went out of business in the U.S. Uh, as a consequence of the pandemic. We lost one in Philadelphia uh, that very near, near dear to my heart, the boot and saddle, a uh, old converted country western honky tonk that was rehabbed and turned into just this really nice intimate performance space uh and uh yeah that went under that was not able to sustain itself and uh yeah there are major cities all over the u.s lost permanently lost some great venues as a consequence of this it's sad um mm -hmm. there's not much you can do about that i mean there are, there are yeah. things you can do about that but i should say that we were not uh taking the steps as a country to to protect them and uh yeah it's yeah important. and well and that's that's the thing here i mean i to me the the main impact yeah obviously you know, these artists, uh, rock and roll artists uh, these days, or at least in the last 10 years, I mean, it's not like, you know, make an album, go out, support it and uh, sell T-shirts. OK, yeah, you do that. OK, you can still make out the albums. But like you said, from streaming, you're not making the, the you, know, you can't make a living as a recording artist without also touring all the time. And it's like the recording is it's like you go out and tour, you sell your t-shirts and you come back and you use your profit to make touring subsidizes recording for the vast majority of younger bands and artists. Um, it, 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 yeah. it, it's, it's, it's the most important thing for them because touring is all like Chris said, is also how they sell their merchandise. Um, unless, unless they get a really kick-ass knockout licensing deal um, with some, cor yeah. with some corporation that, puts their songs in TV commercials or in movies, unless they, unless they get a really knockout licensing deal, they're living on the road. You know, they're living off that. And uh, it, yeah. it's sad that, that, you know, so many venues have gone under, but, and, and we'll get to this point later on as one of my points, you know, like, like, like how many bands and artists are going to, will be able to go on making a living, making music, <laughs> you know, they can't support yeah. it touring. I think that's an interesting question. I, mean, I think we'll definitely get back to that. I mean, like what I think is, you know, there were definitely some artists who came up with some creative solutions. I mean, we, we, uh, uh, my wife had tickets to see uh, Nick Cave uh, before before the lockdowns began, and once once everything started closing down, he ended up uh, basically doing a, a an HD quality streamed show. Uh, it was actually really neat. It was a, a, a live performance from I think it was a, a castle in England. Yeah. And it was just him solo with a grand piano in the middle of this gigantic ballroom playing for two hours. And it was great. He was playing like really like old stuff, like some real deep cuts from his catalog. It was, uh, it was, and it was just him and the piano, just piles of sheet music next to him. And it was, it was a great experience, but it was definitely, it was, it was, it was a weird hybrid. I mean, definitely it, it felt intimate, but it also, you know, obviously it isn't the same as being in a live venue. And like, you know, we, you know, we did, you know, it was a paid ticket and it was still, you know, a transactional. I mean, he benefited from that, but I, I didn't see a lot of that from artists. Most of the artists that I saw were doing like free stuff on Instagram. I mean, you had like people like Ben Gibbard and Jason Isbell doing their their free performances. Ben Folds, uh, John. Yeah. Daniel. Well, and I was also like the verses. The Swiss Beats had that verses series going on where it was like, yeah, yeah. well, the first one was RZA versus DJ Premier, and then they came up with all kinds of weird ones, uh, like like you know, like just. Folks, you wouldn't think would have any kind of things to do with each other, and so, but yeah. It, so yeah, so you did get some fascinating uh, creativity, 
And uh, Arturo, I admire your restraint about uh, holding off on the notion of Nick Cave and a castle. Because well, here's the thing. I, I generally, generally speaking, I do like Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds. I'm just not a, I'm not a fan at all of his recent work, though. I think it's terrible. Yeah. I mean, it's just one continuously slow funeral dirge after another. Like, 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 how much mileage can you get out of your son's death already? You've done two albums of it already. I mean, come on. <laughs> You're a man of deep sympathy, Arthur. in tears in heaven territory. I mean, Jesus Christ. Yeah. Go back yeah. to rocking out, man. Come on. You know. Yeah. He did go back to you know he was playing stuff like Mercy Seed. He was going you know he was he was going back you know deeper into the catalog back to the Golden Age of Nick Cave. Yeah, but, but, so it was definitely like yeah. it, was, it was a career spinning. Believe it or not, uh, I'm, I'm a mid period Nick Cave guy. I like '90s and naughties Nick Cave, uh, like the, the like the first Grinder Man album and Dig Lazarus, oh, Dig great. Lazarus Dig. I like the Boatman's Call a lot. Yeah, um, yeah like '90s Nick Cave and naughties Nick Cave. I'm a big fan of. I think Arturo Andrade is the only member of the podcast community who co-hosts an episode of a rock nerd podcast dedicated to 565,000 dead, who then mocks the dead son of one. I didn't mock his son. I'm mocking him losing shitty music out of that death. That's what I'm mocking. Oh, 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 thanks for the clarification because yeah, it makes so much more taste. <laughs> Eric, Eric Clapton is looking down at you right now. He's just like, oh, man, that guy. <laughs> yeah. oh, wait, oh, wait, there's a great quote I have from Anton Newcomb in the Brian, of the Brian Jonestown Massacre. Great quote. Um, this is several years ago. And, and the, the, the issue of Eric Clapton came up. And you know what Newcomb said? He said, dude, fuck that guy. What has Eric Clapton ever done in his career besides throw his son out the window and write a shitty song about it? Ooh, that's ooh. not my quote. That's Anton Newcomb. <laughs> oh, okay. Wow. Wow. This this got this this got dark. So we've already real, yeah, yeah. So we, we we've already joked about two dead people. Uh, I didn't joke. I, I didn't dead. joke about Nick Cave's son. I just joked about Nick Cave writing shitty songs about his dead son. <laughs> oh, okay. Because again, that's so much better. And uh, I, I I guess this is a good time to point out that. Uh, in, in a way, you can make an argument that uh, this period for uh, live music is actually worse than the uh, the fire at the station in Rhode Island, uh, uh, the Great White mm. show in 2003, because at least people were allowed to go to that show. <laughs> so, anyway. And that, if you, if, and that was if, an issue. Why would people willingly want to go to a Great White show? In 2003. I mean, I mean, Torturing. Yeah. I, I, if I were in the audience, I'd, I'd be glad to, I'd be killed in the fire. I don't want to listen to that band for like two hours. Good God. <laughs> yeah. I, so, somehow, folks, uh, remember the uh, the email is curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. Uh, please send all uh, uh, all hate mail and lawsuits uh, uh, to that address, and, and we'll, we'll, we'll gladly uh, respond. Should we so, spell Andrade? <laughs> Yeah, sure. A N T. Okay. Anyway, so, but, but yeah, I gotta say, yeah. I'm actually surprised that it's only it's only 88 venues uh, that have closed. I, I would have thought it would be more. And well, so far, I mean, that's, that's that's the current reckoning, anyway. Yeah, so far, and of course, I haven't done much reading up on this, but what um, what federal money? Uh, like let's say this America re- uh, Rescue Plan that Biden just signed into law, uh, how much is there for uh, arts relief? I mean, or that's actually 
some good news, and I, I got to say, and and uh, you know, to to actually give credit where credit was due, this actually uh, was something that started in the previous uh, uh, negotiations in in, in the uh, you know the other guy's administration. Okay. <laughs> uh, but but with the rescue plan came along, they upped it, and and uh, the number I, the number was uh, sixteen billion dollars in funding uh, for the Save Our Stages Act, is what they were calling it. And oh, wow. uh, what's cool about that is two billion of that is reserved for small venues with uh, uh, fifty or less employees, fifty or fewer employees, um, which is really neat. I mean that that's, yeah. that's oh, really that's fantastic money, and uh, I think that's really going to make a huge impact for a lot of these these struggling clubs, and it's uh, you know. Hopefully that and the uh, the stimulus will, will will keep some of those uh, the service employees who work there and uh, keep them going for a little bit longer until the, uh, the the venues can open back up again in some capacity. Yeah, exactly. And so, is, is that mostly a Broadway thing, or is that just sort of, sort of go across the board? Is that? Oh, it's uh, it's any performance space. I mean, it could be yeah, jazz clubs. It could be you know. I mean, it go it go. It's, it's any 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 artistic performance space. It goes from you know from the Broadway theater. I mean. I'm imagining even someplace like the Hollywood Bowl might be eligible for something. Sure. Like that. I think yeah. it's a, I think it scales for any kind of performance space. Okay. Yeah. Be- but, but, but the carve out for the, the carve out for the small venues, I think, is really important. I mean, again, you know, speaking from the Philadelphia perspective, um, you know, we we do have a couple big 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 venues, but our our bread and butter here is we've got some really terrific small clubs. I mean, we get we get all all the acts that that come to the East Coast. I mean, pretty much any any, any act that performs in D.C., New York, Boston, they you know, they all come to Philadelphia, mm-hmm. and uh, you you can really see a lot of these great acts in these intimate venues. Um, and it would be a real shame to lose those because then you just yeah, you absolutely. Just do some really yeah. top notch shows and and a, and a really you know, compact setting where you can really feel just right up, right up, right up in the, uh, the artist's business. And there's one other thing I, I wanted to, to, you know, talk about, which is the, uh, you know, the, the whole, the whole festival thing. And I think this, this kind of goes into, you know, something I think we're going to talk about in a bit, but the, you know, the, the, the other really big open question is, you know, everyone talks about the safety of uh, outdoor, outdoor events versus indoor events. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of talk about which of the big outdoor festivals are still going to happen, whether, you know, that, that's another great money-making opportunity for a lot of artists to go to these big, you know, multi-day, multi, multi-artist, multi you know, just jam-packed marquees of, of, of performers. And, uh, you know, right now there's there's a couple that are actually still trying. I think Bonnaroo is, is still on right now for September, as far as I know. I think they actually announced their lineup uh, very ambitiously, perhaps. But uh, and I think yeah. Lollapalooza is also still tentatively scheduled for, for this summer. How about Glastonbury? Yeah, I know. They're canceled. They're canceled. Yeah, Coachella definitely canceled. Uh, yeah. yeah, most of the big ones, but well, Bonnaroo's in Tennessee, so that shouldn't be a shock. Um, you know, yeah, I was going to say, you know, the you know any, anywhere there, where there's a red state, you know. Yeah. Uh, but but we'll see. I mean, is it too early for another Sturgis clusterfuck? I mean, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, we'll, you know, we'll we'll definitely see. So. I guess um, one of, one of the questions from there. So we talk about the impact. So now here we are in this moment where we're in this vaccination period, and the rollouts are happening, and there's some optimism. Uh, obviously, we have these variants that we've been reading about from South Africa and Brazil and Europe and uh, other uh, other locations. So, uh, what exactly do we know at this point about the risk uh, of uh, transmission of COVID uh, in both indoor and outdoor settings? I mean, what do we, you know, so what, so what exactly, um, where are we in terms of, of the risk? And then do you have any 
uh, insights or any sources who told you, you know, sort of their thoughts about the best way to get these places back open? Yeah, I mean, it's it's been a real problem. There's been a lot of confusing messaging, as everybody knows, over the past year uh, about what we're supposed to do and what's responsible and what's irresponsible. And I got to say, you know, speaking as a science journalist, the CDC has definitely not covered itself in glory uh, under under Redfield, the previous director. Uh, there was a lot of really confusing information out there, and a lot of states were just kind of winging it. Even states that were trying to do the right thing were winging it. Um, I think what people need to know is that, you know, in general, it's good to do things outside. I mean, it's healthy to do things outside. If you, you know, maintain your space from other people, if you, you know, wear a mask when you're not eating or drinking, if you're just kind of a sensible person and keep your, you know, don't, don't cluster together into dense packs, you are so much safer outside than you are inside um, from transmission. There mm-hmm. just aren't, you know, one of the things that's, that's really kind of come out is that a lot of the, the big super spreader events like Sturgis, for example, I mean, you've got all these dudes and, and ladies and other folks just, you know, congregating outside in the streets, but then they're going to these bars and clubs and they're doing yeah. shots and they're dancing and they're partying and whatever. And, and that's, that's where the real super spreader problem is happening. It's these indoor spaces and, or, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to decouple. It's kind of hard to say, this is where the virus went crazy. This is where the problem started, but you know, ventilation, circulation of air, distance, you know, you know the, the big thing with, with a virus like this is that it's about how much you're being exposed to in what period of time. Yes. And, you know, the I'm, more I'm, distance and the more airflow there is, the, 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 the smaller that number gets. Yeah, I've, I've actually read somewhere that it's safer to be on an airplane than it is at a church <laughs> uh, yeah. right now, which fascinates me because you would think because of the proximity and being in the uh, in the tube, uh, yeah. you would be more uh, at risk. But I think it's because of the filtration. Uh, and, and I, th- I think the, so, I, I think the, the airline same. industry needs the money more than the damn churches do. <laughs> yeah. But it's also the singing and the chanting, which is, you know, uh, you know, then we get back to the concert situation. But I mean, like if you look at churches, look at all the super spreader events that happened in churches. There was a big one in, in Korea, oh, for yeah. example. Uh, <laughs> Oh, yeah. at a church very early on in the pandemic, but that's happened over and over again. There's been a whole bunch of church related um, outbreaks because people are, are chanting together. They're singing together they're And, you know, you just got a picture, you know, all these little droplets, it's, it's spread by little tiny droplets. And, you know, the louder you are, the farther they fly. And, and yeah, and it else's open mouth is right next to yours. And, you know, that's, that's where they're going to go. <laughs> yeah. And then that, that's exactly the reason why my fiance and I won't go back to our church for, uh, probably not until 2022 uh, because, you know, especially being down here in Texas, you know, it's just one of these things where, uh, you know, there's an exception with masks optional. And so because of what we know about those super spreading events and those types of things, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to stay away. So it sounds like, and maybe uh, your point about Sturgis kind of uh, affected the way that I'm thinking about this. I was initially going to think, well, it's more likely for you two at MetLife Stadium to come back uh, quicker than it is uh, the parquet courts at, right. uh, you know, yeah. at like uh, uh, Metro in DC or something. So, 
Um, but that might not necessarily be the case. Just would depend on like hotel accommodations and et cetera, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it really is about how the the show is structured. So, there, yeah, one you know, there's actually one thing I really wanted to bring up just because I think it's kind of neat. <laughs> uh, there are a pair of European studies that both are simulating the dynamics that would take place at a real concert. Uh, there was one yeah. in Germany um, that was completed. Uh, I don't think it's been published in a journal yet, but there was a bunch of media coverage of it. And uh, they had, um, let me look at the number, it was 1,400 people uh, in an indoor concert. They had them dancing, they, you know, they, had, they had drinks. It was like, a, I think like four hours long and they just basically kind of tried to simulate what a normal club show might be. I think it was reduced capacity uh, they were encouraging people to wear masks when they weren't drinking or, you know, uh, you know, eating or whatever. Um, and it, it, it definitely showed that if people, you know, adhere to basic measures, I mean, and, and again, the ventilation was a really big thing. They, they optimized the ventilation system in this venue. They made sure that there's rapid air exchange going on, that there were, you know, that there's as much circulation as possible. And I mean, you have to, you have to wonder, I mean, we were you know, <laughs> not to, not to dwell on that great white story, but <laughs> you're talking yeah. about uh, uh, music venues being up to code. I mean, you think, think on all the small venues that you've ever been to a show for, how many of those, I mean, think about how sweaty you've ever come out of one of yeah. those shows. I mean, you oh, go to yeah. a show there in like July or August, I mean, you're in Texas, I mean, but you know, even in the Northeast, I mean, you go to a show in July or August, we've got a, we got a, a Unitarian church in Philly that does shows. I came out of there. I felt like I lost eight pounds of liquid weight just like sweating it out. And, you know, I saw totally oh, yeah. I, mean, I remember doing like eight pounds lighter. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I remember doing shows at the Roseland Ballroom in New York, where it would be like uh, in the middle of winter, and yeah. I would come out of that place sweating my balls off. So, I mean, it was, you know, it was it was interesting. Mike, so, touching on your point earlier, I mean, call me a cynic, but expecting people, particularly Americans. To follow that kind of protocol, I think, is a risky gambit. <laughs> it is. You know? It really yeah. is. Yeah. yeah. yeah I, I'm an American, so I can criticize Americans, especially especially <laughs> Americans and how stupid and ass backwards, they, 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 not just the government, but the people themselves yeah. have dealt with this virus. To expect people to follow protocol, keep your distance, wear a mask. No, no, no. I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to take off my mask and I'm going to spit and drink and do whatever. You know? It's really risky, man. I, 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 I'd rather just stay home. <laughs> yeah. And well, well, this brings up a, an interesting point. So there, there are a couple of things that we've talked about here, which is one, the lack of up the snuffness of uh, a lot of these venues that we, we know in terms of crowd control, in terms of, you know, not, uh, well, you know, the codes in terms of the building themselves. And then, you know, the, you know, the safe occupancy being 400 and they get 500 people in there and all that yeah. stuff that we've always uh, gotten used to. So does this necessarily mean what we're going to see is a, a new era of, is the concert going experience as we know it at that club level going to be different now? But do they have to do structural engineering or do they have to sort of redo their physical plants to be able to accommodate folk and make people feel safe enough? And and that, that yeah. brings the, it up to Artie's point, too, that, you know, that there are a lot of morons in America that, you know, are just too lazy or too arrogant to uh, follow, uh, follow the rules. And so... If I'm in the concert venue business and I'm thinking about my insurance, I'm like, oh, shit, how do I open up and how do I make sure that these dumb fucks don't, you know, get me get me in trouble? 
Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, I, I don't know if you guys remember ever seeing this during the uh, the past year. I mean, there's been, it was one of those kind of viral uh, uh, infographics that went around and they called it the, uh, the Swiss cheese model of, of, of illustrating protection. Have you seen this? Like the idea no. is that you've got these, these slices of Swiss cheese, they've all got holes in them. So like, you know, one, one slice of Swiss cheese is if you wear a mask and nobody else wears a mask and like that doesn't really stop a lot of things from going through. And then the second slice of Swiss cheese is, you know, you wearing a mask and keeping, you know, say six feet away from other people. That's the second layer. And that means less things are getting through the holes. And the idea is that every layer oh, yeah. of protection you have is, 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 is collectively. And so it's an additive effect. And I think, you know, that's the same kind of thing with these venues. Because it's what we talk about with opening schools, Jim. It's the same, it's the same issue with opening schools. Like, you know, you, you can do lots of different things to get the right outcome. You don't necessarily have to do all of them, but you have to do several of them. And you can't just yeah. do one of them. Um, so you could, you know, I mean, sure, you could have everybody be vaccinated, uh, and that's great. That'd be that'd be wonderful if we had that kind of vaccine coverage where you could say everybody has to be vaccinated, they can go see the show, and nobody has to worry. That's not realistic right now. I mean, you know, and you could say, okay, everyone has to have the state of the art HVAC system installed in their, their club, and that's also yeah. <laughs> yeah and, everybody's well, got a mask up, and nobody can dance together, and. <laughs> Yeah, and well, and that's another thought that just went through my head. So, okay, so we have the uh, Save Our Stages Act. Yeah. And thank you for reminding me of the name of that, by the way. So they're getting the, the $16 billion. Okay, well, ostensibly that's meant to protect the artists and the support people and all of that. Well, how yeah. much money of that might actually end up going into, like you said, you know, uh, most of these broke-ass clubs, I mean, the last thing you're thinking about is installing yeah. a state-of-the-art uh, HVAC system because they're all broke. Uh, so is some of that money going to subsidize some of this, um, interchange, you know, this, this yeah. overlap or this, this upgrade work? I mean, that's a good question. I don't, I don't, I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think it's kind of like the same thing with the schools. I mean, there's money for schools and, and the question is, you know, all these old schools, are they getting the money they need? Yeah. And, and so if, if, if the money's not there for schools, how likely is it there for, for, you know, the small, small music venues? Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It's, yeah, I mean, this is this, this is a fascinating conversation because, I mean, look, you know, we're ostensibly talking about live music and about you know our memories of of these shows and accommodating these rock bands and, and all of that. But there's a larger thing. You know, you've mentioned schools, we've mentioned churches, we've mentioned airplanes, and all of this. That when something like this, which has never happened in any of our lifetimes, except for like the people who are 110 years old, um, you have to basically redo everything. Uh, yeah. it's, it's daunting, but maybe it's an opportunity. Maybe we can do things better. Maybe we can make things more right. Maybe even we can make things more fun. Yeah. You know, sure. Yeah. Um, an, opportunity, an opportunity to get it right the second time around. You know, mm-hmm. I agree. Yeah. I mean, it's I, not, it's, these aren't bad things to do. I mean, like having good ventilation systems, you know, in general is, is, is you know, objectively a good thing. I and mean, you think about like, you know, just to you know, draw a parallel, like think about how, how mild the flu season was this year because of all the mm-hmm. countermeasures against COVID. I mean, and the same idea is like, if you have like a good ventilation system that spread that prevents the spread of one kind of infection, you know, that, that's going to work mm-hmm. well for lots of things. I mean, maybe that means that, you know, a show is not going to turn into a flu party in, in the wintertime. You know, that's that's just kind of like a, a, that's a good infrastructure improvement just across the board. It costs a lot yeah, of money. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's that capital investment you know, to get it to get it going. 
Yeah, and it actually reminds me of something uh, as part of my, uh, you know, I do a lot of marketing writing for law firms. And I just wrote an article about uh, implementing employee vaccination policies. And uh, the attorney that I was working with on the article, I was a ghostwriter, uh, was saying that uh, he's advising employers when they write their COVID-19 vaccination policies to just do it general so that you can capture the flu and then, you know, the inevitable, uh, you know, COVID-20 and COVID-21 and COVID-22. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, know, when, you know, when they come down to Pike, I mean, we're kind yeah. of in a pandemic era, uh, perhaps. Uh, you just have it all in place. And so, again, it's just uh, you're, you're, think, you're, you're rebuilding short-term and thinking long-term. We got a little serious in this week's episode with all this coronavirus stuff, but we bring the levity back with next week's episode. Two years ago, a writer named Rick Simmons wrote an article for RebeatMag.com listing week-by-week, quote-unquote, proof that 1974 was the worst year in the history of music. Well, Chris and I respectfully and vehemently disagree. Tune in next week as the curmudgeons give their rebuttal to that online article, and we give our 10 reasons why 1974 did not suck at all. In fact, it was a pretty great year, with, with some all-time great albums that were released within that year's 365 days. And we'll prove it. Follow us on Twitter at at curmudgeonpod or email us at curmudgeonrock at gmail.com. All right, Mike. Well, I guess this kind of leads to the next question, the fourth big question. Um, we talked about things from the perspective of the venues, the venue owners, uh, the artists, the bands, you know, management, blah, blah, blah. Now, here, how about the perspective from the actual fans, you know, the paying customers who actually go to these shows? The question is, I guess, will they actually come back? Now, the answer for that may be yes, but there's more to it than that. I mean, with I mean, think about people like me and Chris. I, I mean, Chris and I are kind of on the same page here with streaming downloading, illegal downloading, which is pretty much what I do, you know, uh, you, you, YouTube. <laughs> A year without drunken idiots, you know, going to party, partying, a year without parking fees, a year without $35 t-shirts. I mean, to us, that sounds great. <laughs> you know, so, so, so why the hell venture back out, you know? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll start by telling about myself here, Benny. I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm older than both of y'all. Uh, I, I'm a, a new father. We, uh, we had a baby earlier, uh, but not earlier this year, uh, around this time last year. Uh, so my, my, my concert attendance uh, expectations are considerably lower uh, COVID right. no COVID right. at this point. Uh, but I, I still, you know, I still enjoy live. The live you know, there are lots of things that really piss me off about the live. You know, I'm, I'm definitely, that is where my, my inner curmudgeon definitely comes out at that, uh, in that venue uh, <laughs> setting as well. But I, I could see myself going back, but I think, you know, I think more broadly, I mean, you have to, for better or for worse, you have to look at all all the people who didn't stop going to, to look look at all the underground like raves and right. parties that were shut sure. down in Europe and the yeah. U.S. Look at all these uh, 
look at all these like these country western shows that happen sure. in like you know in Tennessee and Texas and 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 look at all the the spring breakers in Florida and the mm-hmm. you know the bikers in Sturgis and it's like you know there's just example you know all, all these example after example after example you know people people were doing this shit when there were thousands of people dying every day right uh-huh. Like literally thousands, like multiple thousands of people dying every single day. Uh, you know, like yeah. 9-11 every single day was happening. And these people were going to country Western shows. Um, I yeah. don't necessarily, you know, and, and this doesn't <laughs> reflect necessarily well on uh, on us as a, as, as a species. But I, I, I do think that, you know, out of sight, out of mind is going to be the reality for a lot of people just like it was at the height of the pandemic when you know when i you know in, in philadelphia was experiencing a relatively you know locked down and quiet city not locked down in the you know extreme sense but it was you know it was it was pretty quiet it was a, you know people hanging on the park you know outdoor seeing in a couple places but it was definitely a shadow of the old philadelphia but you know, if you lived in, in Florida or, or Louisiana or Texas, you probably had a very different experience. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, not, not necessarily in my case, cause you know, yeah. my, uh, my fiance, uh, is a liver transplant recipient. So, you know, we, we've essentially been, uh, uh, she just went back to work this week, but we essentially spent a year indoors. And of course I've joked with her. It's like, uh, you know, what, what, will you still love me when we actually get to do something um, <laughs> you know, out, you know, out, outdoors, you know, we, you know, even going to parks has been a little rough down here because, you know, you're talking like uh, arboretums, which, you know, down here might yeah. as well just be swamps and people are still walking around with no masks, you know, with that's the true test of a relationship though, Chris. I and mean, the fact that you guys were able to see your relationship through being shut in the same house together for a year. I mean, you guys can survive anything now, man. This yeah, is, that's, that's know, like that's that's yeah, what we call exactly. a battle test. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it, it is it is battle testing, but you know, you know, it, it's interesting that uh, you know we we talked about that. And you made an actually an excellent point, Mike. That that something we don't often uh, realize or acknowledge enough that uh, we're in a world where people can live their lives in an information silo, and so. You know, our mindsets as, you know, what I like, I jokingly refer to myself down here as a Northeastern Yankee liberal. (laughs) And so, you know, we're Northeastern Yankee liberals. And so we have our kind of own latitude. And so when we look at things and like, oh, you know, uh, we have to be safe and this is a public health crisis. And we think about the economics and all of this and, you know, how not to be selfish and, and, and all of that. And then meanwhile, you've got, uh, uh, an entire other silo that thinks this whole thing is nonsense or they don't want to buy it or they, yeah. um, uh, they see the, um, you know, the, the greedy drug companies that are manipulating us to make the money or, you know, in the most extreme cases, it's, it's not the virus that's killing you. It's the masks and the ventilators, yeah. you know, uh, <laughs> you know, good old pandemic. And so, yeah. you know, there is that perspective, but you do have these, you know, like, you know, Arturo Moxham, but, you know, I know a few of them and they're friends. These, you know, the freedom. My freedom! My freedom! Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. The freedom people. And so, you know, and, and that's the thing. It's like, you know, they're not letting this thing stop them from doing Sturgis based on their own worldview. They're not stopping, like you said. Lack of worldview. It, it takes a lack of a worldview to do what these people do. Come on. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, well, well, that's well, well, that's the thing. It's um, 
look, a worldview is a worldview. Uh, my worldview is not your worldview. Um, there's worldviews that are more grounded in reality. <laughs> and, and I think that that's the thing. You know, Mike, you're a science guy. I mean, you're, you're uh, tuned in to the, to the best virologists in the world pretty much on this one. Uh, but, you know, there's folks out there that just, you know. Well, and there, and there are worldviews out there that are not grounded in plain old selfishness. Yeah. Let's face it. A lot of this is selfishness. Yeah. It's selfishness and it's ignorance. You know, they, yeah. they, these people deserve to be castigated and, 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 and criticized. Because they... But, but, well, yeah, well, I mean, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it does deserve yeah. criticism for sure. Yeah, yeah but that, that is some of it. But, but look, they, you know, I, I've always said that, you know, that the Fox Newses and the conservative news media, and then not only that, but even outlets like The Intercept and Breitbart and uh, even darker and sort of more you know, bloggy, uh, worlds out there yeah. that these people, you know, in an objective sense, I think a lot of these people are quote unquote, well-informed. Uh, and so what it's done is, and I think this is one of the legacies of the first generation. We're in the second generation really now, the internet is the creation of all these inter- these, these information silos. And so you've got this generation, you've got the formation of all these smart, stupid people. And my, one of my mother's best friends is one of these smart, stupid people. You know, she's, uh, tangentially related, but she's one of these people that posts uh, these memes that uh, that say that you know, uh, you know, why are our Medicare dollar, Medicaid dollars going to treat illegal immigrants? You know, yeah. or you know these false, these false <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, you know, we're, we're we're putting up illegal immigrants at hotels and ignoring homeless veterans. Share if you yeah. agree. Uh, so, you know, I said these people read, these people will watch things, they listen to radio. They're, but it's in, misinformation. They're reading and hearing a lot of yeah. wrong information. Yes. What, I, yeah. Something I'd like to, yeah, this, this, I don't want to go too far on a tangent on this because it's easy to do, but I think there's been a lot of weaponized, you know, weaponization of disinformation has been a real yes. problem in terms of like people picking their experts. Um, yes. you, know, you know, with the internet, with the internet, you have access to, you know, actual scientists, actual policymakers, they all go on Twitter and they all go on and they post online and you can, you you get people who shop for their experts and they, they shop for experts that align with their worldview and it's true with climate change and it's been true with COVID. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. And I, I, I do think that, that there is that sort of shopping, uh, which ironically enough, I mean, the, 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 the most guilty parties of that are the, uh, the big pharmas, <laughs> you know, they have, they have 30 research studies and two of them that have positive results That's what they're, they're going to go with. Um, so again, so it's not like this hasn't existed for all, but you know, the larger point is, and I think that this is related, this idea of reopening safely and this idea of going yeah. back and all of that. Uh, I think it, it comes down to information discernment. I also think it comes down to trust and uh, I don't think there's any way that you can normalize trust, if you know what I you, mean. You can't, and yeah, and I think you, but you can, you can teach critical thinking, and I think mm-hmm. that that's, I mean, that's sort of an opportunity, and I, and I do hope, you know, that the the rising generation of students, I, I mean, I I'm not familiar with how how schools are operating in this day and age. I'm going to find out in five years, <laughs> but I, I'm not really sure what curricula look like, but I, you know, I do think that it's, it's more, you know, I don't feel like I necessarily was given a solid grounding thinking about the 
provenance of information that I got when I was in this. Like, oh, you, you hear this on the news. It must be true. It was on the news because somebody right. said it on television. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and back in, you know, back when we were growing up, we didn't have, you know, Fox news. We didn't have MSNBC. You, know, you had the, you had the big three uh, networks. You had your local newspaper, you had your city newspaper, you know, maybe, maybe you were, yeah. you were fancy. You got the New York times or the wall street journal. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, which but, but, makes me. But, but then, you know, obviously, the related question is: is were we more bullshitted back then? <laughs> well, it's interesting. I, mean, I think, like, did you ever read Manufacturing Consent? That's that, the I, a, I have that book. There, it's a Noam Chomsky book. Yeah, it's a classic. It, yep. That was a. I read that in college, and it was, you know, and I know this is such a corny cliche. Like, oh my god, I read Chomsky in college. It changed my life. Like, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I think don't get too late now. <laughs> I, I don't want to be that guy, uh, but I do okay. want to say that it's it's an excellent book in terms of deconstructing uh, the way that media can be weaponized to 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 sell a viewpoint without openly selling a viewpoint. Like the way the way yeah. that an agenda can be buried in a media message, and you know, obviously, what we see with things like Tucker Carlson, you know, there there's no subtext; it's all text. You know, that, that's okay. you know, the racism is right there for everyone to look at. But but right. there's a lot of you know, there's there's a lot of uh, when you talk about things like scientific stuff, you know, where there you know, expertise is hard to come by in, in the general population. It's a lot easier to kind of smuggle a misleading message by with like a grain of truth in it, and it's I think that's a real issue. Like you can you can publish a bad study that says the conclusion that you wanted to say from your political goal, and to the untrained you know reader they're going to say oh there's a graph look this this is a graph I, I looked at this graph mm-hmm. and it shows that you know the that you know all these people who supposedly died of COVID actually died of other things than COVID they were actually oh this person you know these people all died of pneumonia that's not COVID that's pneumonia or, you know yeah. they, they, they can they can justify. A, a misinterpretation because they have a, a, a figure, they have a table, they have yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. a professor at some university who's saying this, and, and you don't have the context that, hey, this guy is not an epidemiologist, this guy is not a virologist, this guy is yeah, not... He's a, he's a radiologist. <laughs> and, 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 exactly. You have the flat-out manipulation of data. The manipulation of data so it can reflect this person's political agenda and that conclusion. I want this conclusion to be this. So we got this data that doesn't really support the conclusion I want, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to change the data and fuck around. With it. Yeah. So basically you're basically, so even, basically lying. Yeah. <laughs> it is even, it, it, the things that it, it isn't even fudging. It's, it's, it's more like a sin of omission. You, you're misrepresenting. Like you're, I, I, I think in very few cases is the data actively just, you know, fabricated from whole cloth but what it is it's kind of like you omit context you omit the way the data was collected like you you yeah. you you you, un, you 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 cover up the biases that are inherent in the way you conducted the study right. and, and if you are not aware of those biases that, that, those can really change the way you interpret something it's like it completely changes the perspective of what you're looking at um, yeah no absolutely and and to sort of bring this back to uh b- back to the uh this topic of getting people back out in the clubs yeah. I think a lot of people uh, really would like somebody to tell them, okay, it's safe to come back out yeah. or, you know, this is how you're supposed to do it or you should or shouldn't do it. Um, I think what's going to happen is because there's all those mixed messages and because people are in their worldviews, it's, um, I just wonder if we're just going to have to go out and find out for ourselves, you know, and yeah, I don't know. 
I mean, I, th- I think COVID was kind of a worst case scenario pandemic in, in some ways. And I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to say that it couldn't get worse. But what I, what, what I mean is that, you know, it's a virus that only makes a percentage of people sick. It's very contagious. It can make you extremely sick. It can kill you. It can, it can make you have long-term symptoms for, you know, God only knows how long. But I think, you know, people are used to thinking of pandemics like Ebola. You know, they, they watch they watch a movie like Outbreak and they think, oh, you know, I'm going to bleed through my eyes. There's going to be dead bodies piled in the street. That's what a pandemic looks like. And I think yeah. people have this kind of, you know, fanciful notion. And I think that really contributes to kind of not taking it seriously is that, oh, you know, only 5% of people get seriously sick and only 1% die. That sounds really small. I mean, 1% sounds really small. It's a lot. Think, yeah. you know, it's a lot. Yeah, the thing you think, yeah, there's 300, 330 million people in the United States, and one percent of that is like you know that's that's three point three million people. Like, yeah, 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 <laughs> that's, yeah, that's a yeah, lot of people. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, and oh, and that's the thing. Yeah, so you're right. You're talking about the scale, but it's it's more subtle. And then, I mean, look, I mean, we to me the uh, the the uh, the ice trucks or the uh, in you know, out back of the hospital. Yeah. It's about the closest we get or, you know, those uh, those aerial shots in New York of the mass yeah. graves are about as sci-fi as we've gotten. And so, yeah, exactly. So, which is funny because actually my fiance was binge watching Contagion on Netflix a few weeks ago. <laughs> oh, which, which, why? Yeah, I, yeah, I don't understand it either. Because, look, Maybe she should watch Chernobyl next. That's a nice uplifting mini series. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, here's, here's, here she is dealing with medical trauma, but she's watching Contagion. So, like, what the fuck? You know, it's, uh, it's yeah. interesting. So, so again, you know, so we'll, you know, we'll see, we'll see what happens. Um, I think it might take a few years, but my prediction is, is that uh, some clubs will die, new clubs will show up. I think that uh, eventually. Um, the folks that would see Kurt Vile now will see Kurt Vile then. Uh, I think yeah. that, you know, and so I think it'll be there, but I just think it'll take a few years to get there. Uh, I think the $35 t-shirt will now be the $50 t-shirt. <laughs> I think that, yeah, I think the $30 and still buy them. ticket will <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes, you will. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I think yeah, I, yeah. You'll still buy. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, but the thirty five dollar admission fee is now going to be like a seventy five dollar admission fee, and, and so, and then you know, you just don't know. I mean, are there going to be dividers? Or are there going to be you know? Are there? I mean, performers be- want to perform. I think that's something that we you know to kind of go back to what I said at the beginning. You know, these performers they want to perform. You had all these artists who are doing doing shit for free. You know, uh-huh. getting nothing in return except for love and uh, appreciation, yeah. which is not nothing, but but they weren't getting money, they weren't getting you know career advancement, but they were just doing it because they wanted to perform, they wanted to you know keep their fans happy, they wanted to keep a presence, and I think yeah. you know that that's 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 part of being an artist. I mean, uh, you know, I'm not an artist myself, so I'm you know I'm you know, maybe speaking a little bit out of turn, you know, but <laughs> speaking on their behalf. But uh, I feel like yeah, I saw so many great you know intimate you know, streams of people performing from their home studios, performing from their lawns, performing from their garages. And uh, it was kind of beautiful. Yeah, it was kind mean, of beautiful that's, to see how- That's the thing. You know, I mean, this is an interesting segue actually to the fifth and final <laughs> uh, big question yeah. um, that we have. And it's basically, and, and, and kind of bringing this back to music, you know, bringing this back to young bands slash artists. And yeah. how do they recover from all this? How long will it take? Um, same with the venues, but we just spoke about that. 
do they recover at all? A lot of the, like I said, a lot of these young bands and artists, you know, they, they make their living from touring, take touring away. They're going to have to find other ways to make money if they don't have good licensing deals, if they don't have any merchandise being yeah. sold. You know, if they do recover, you know, how will it take years to get back in a touring rhythm that makes them all earn the living that they used to live, that they, they, they sorry, that they used to have, yeah. you know, um, yeah. I, I, like, like, you know, I, I know I'm going to make a point of this in every, uh, every episode. I'm going to mention this guy's name at least once, but are we going to get more Ty Siegels who pump out, <laughs> who pump out music like every six months or Taylor Swift for that matter? Cause she put out. Or King, King Gizzard and the Lizard yeah, Wizard. Right? <laughs> you know, so yeah. that's my question. Is like, how do the young, the, the yeah. ones who are really affected by this are not the Beyonce's of the world. It's like, no. <laughs> it's the King Gizzards of the world. It's the Ty Siegel's of the world. You know, the VOCs of the world. You know, I mean, how do they recover from all this? That's, you know, the big question, I guess. I mean, I think it really depends on, you know, how, you know, well, you know there's, there's a couple of interesting things going on here. You know, on the one hand, I mean, I was about to say something that I kind of thought better. I was going to say it kind of depends where you are in your career. And I think like if you've got a fan base, I mean, you could imagine, you know, a there's all sorts of like subscriber and patron models out there. now. I mean, you could get, you could almost picture like return of the fan club model, like from back in the old days, yeah. like back when you joined the REM fan club mm -hmm. and then they, they would send you a yeah. Christmas single every year. And like, you know, <laughs> and you get some collectible that nobody else had. And like, you know, I yeah, think, yeah. People are going to have to get creative. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I mean, so I can see that. Like, if you if you got a, a band, you know, if you got a, if you got a Ty Siegel, for example, who isn't necessarily like you know everybody everybody knows right. him, but like those who know him right. love him, and uh, I could easily see him having a, a subscribers only kind of like you know oh you're gonna get this exclusive download you know there's only you know 150 downloads for my 150 you know top patrons or whatever, but you know but the other point I was gonna make and, I, and I'm kind of rethinking that now is about how. You know, early stage artists who are struggling. You think about all, you know, all the people who made it on like Bandcamp and SoundCloud and all these artists who, who have just kind yeah. of like, you know, look at the Billie Eilish's of the world who just kind of like came out of nowhere and, and, and then mm -hmm. took over. <laughs> and, yeah. I, and I think that there's still a model. I mean, you know, one of the great, you know, the internet has been a great equalizer for that. And that's, and, yeah. And I mean, this is something that we've mentioned a couple of times on this show, but uh, the, the biggest, and most reliable music distribution source in the U.S. right now is TikTok. Hmm. I mean, this explains why Fleetwood yep. Max had had a top <laughs> yeah. last year. And you've had some artists that had actually broke. I think Megan Thee Stallion actually got a break from uh, from TikTok. And there's right, been yeah. a few artists in, in that boat too. So you never know. I mean, there's social media, and so I think that well, there's a couple of things here. I think that we're really talking about the touring. I mean, these people will always make music, you know, like you said, they'll find ways to perform, even if it's just for like three people in their lawn. Um, if they have to revert to recording on an old four track in the basement, uh, they will. And, you know, kind yeah. of self-produced or they'll fuck around with pro tools and, and, and that kind of stuff. But, but just the idea of being able to go out there and make a living. Um, and so well, I remember like, you know, and I've alluded to this a few times on this podcast, but in general, it got to the point where like 12 years ago, the best way to, uh, to get a profile was to live next to door to that music writer in either Brooklyn or Seattle. 
Uh, yeah. You know, like, you know, the same what happened to TV on the radio. A lot of, a lot yeah, of, a yeah, lot yeah. of crappy bands have gotten big through that uh, modus operandi. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so there's that, but I, I, just, I just remember, uh, you know, there were, I remember there was an interview with uh, uh, the dude from, I think his name is John McRae from uh, Cake, like 10 years ago, where he was saying that it was getting to the point where with uh, declining album sales and, with, you know, streaming and all that, that a lot of his peers were thinking about just, you know, going and, you know, selling insurance or, uh, you know, doing, doing other, you know, just retiring and going and doing other stuff. And I think we may get even more of that now because it's like, you know, he was still out there, you know, pushing through, uh, touring and licensing and, and, and that kind of thing. Like you just live your life on the road and make music when you can. Um, well, I guess, and maybe you answered this earlier, is maybe that that Save Our Stages Act will give these folks a boost that helps them get back get back on the horse. I don't know. It's uh, and I think the same thing applies for older artists too. I mean, you, if you look at it, like David Crosby just sold the rights to his uh, music and publishing yeah. for like you know for several million dollars to Irving Azoff, and so it's not like David Crosby was like hurting for money or anything, but it's almost for, for these artists. Now it's almost like a state planning, yeah. you know what I mean? You know, is it worth yeah. going back on the road and you can't do that? And so, okay. So I can't make any new music. So I'm just going to. Well, Crosby, it's, it's, it's an interesting, it's kind of a weird example because he really wasn't doing that well off. Like he, he was doing really well off from touring, take the touring away. And he wasn't making that much money. Um, his royalty rates were really bad. Obviously, the streaming shit, you know, that, that you know, um, he, he'd made almost nothing from that. He's not as big of a name on his own as, say, you know, Bob Dylan or Neil Young or guys like that. Uh, so when Bob Dylan sold his catalog already for like, I don't know how many millions of dollars, he didn't really, he didn't really need to do it. He was already a millionaire many, many, many times over from like, God knows, like half a century of touring, you know, and all the royalty. Cause he, and his royal, I guarantee you, his royalties were way higher than Crosby's. Not just because they're, they are Bob Dylan songs. Many <laughs> more people cover Bob Dylan songs than they cover David Crosby songs. I can, I, I think I can safely say that, you know, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. Yeah, so, so, so Dylan was the one who really was not hurting at all. Like, like he, Honestly, Bob Dylan could stop touring right now, and he's very comfortable for the rest of his life. Oh, yeah. you know? um, David Crosby, not the same. David Crosby, very different scenario. There was an article in Mojo that uh, he came really close to having to sell, to sell his house. Like th th That's how bad it was getting for him um, once COVID hit. You know, and he couldn't go out there and tour because how little, how little he got in royalties, and how little, um, oh yeah, how little he got in royalties. Period, compared to other big names of his era. You know, so yeah, Crosby, I can see why he did it, and he probably needed to do it. But Dylan, I, I, Dylan, that's just Dylan saying to me. That's just Dylan saying I'm not going to tour anymore. That's what that's what it sounds like yeah. to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, I mean, and he's just he's liquidating an asset basically. Yeah, right. You know. You know. So. I mean, I think it would be great, and I, I have no necessarily evidence that this is going to happen, but it would be great if this whole experience gave artists more leverage to to push back against the, 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 the fucked up royalty system and really you know, yeah. just kind of retake, retake what, they, what they're due. Yeah. And, and it would yeah. be great if this motivated 
you know, you know, <laughs> some sort of, you know, organized labor movement amongst the, uh, amongst the artists of the world to say, Hey, you know, the, you can't just keep uh, profiteering off of our work. It's, 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 it's one of the two reasons I, I, I don't, it's one of the two reasons I don't do Spotify. I think Spotify is evil. Yeah. Oh, I hate really? Spotify for that really? reason. Spotify is evil, man. The, 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 what they pay artists is so little. The artists might as well put their stuff up for free. They're getting pennies. Yeah. Okay. It's what they're getting. Yeah, it, look, I mean, you know, from a selfish consumer point of view, I mean, I use Spotify just because uh, uh, it's just more convenient. You know, I mean, you can access music at, at, at any time. It's like 50. Dude, dude, long. me, me illegally downloading Ty Siegel's album and talking about it on this podcast serves Ty Siegel better than Spotify does. Yeah, right. in a way, you're right. I mean, if, yeah. yeah, if yeah, assuming we scale up, Mr. Siegel, uh, we'll, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, we probably will make you more money than Spotify. No, I, I get that. And yeah. so it's not just, it's not really about, look, as a distribution source, Spotify is the greatest thing ever. Uh, as a marketplace, it sucks. And, uh, you know, obviously the labels are eating this up. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. And, and then, but yeah, see, it's strange because it seems like if I was a, a baby band, like think about a band like the Chats, you know, who we've talked about on this show, the you know, 21 year old kids. Uh, yeah, their stuff is on Spotify too, but it's for distribution. But they could, um, they could put their stuff out there on their own website with a tip cup and they'll probably make infinitely more money. Oh, for sure. Uh, yeah. yeah, doing it, doing it that way. Uh, you know, the, the Patreon, you know, Patreon, which is, you know, I've, I've been trying to set up Patreon sites here for the last couple of months and yeah, it, it's hard work, but, uh, <laughs> but like you said, that, that kind of model, uh, I think is more likely to hit than Spotify. I think that, um, yeah, there's a, there's a few other things. Like if you wanted to do your own paywall and, you know, like, uh, I mean, bands could sell their own, like subscribe, you know, for, you know, Fifty dollars a month, you get access to our whole catalog, and you get well, like, exactly yeah. shows and stuff like that. And so, and you know, and Pearl Jam's a good example of this, actually. Um, you know, they've been really successful self-promoting themselves, it, and they've said it. You know, their their manager, uh, and I think it might have been Stone Gossard, but this was back when they were pr- uh, promoting their album in twenty thirteen. I remember them saying that um, it's we you know we, we're making more money now than we did when we were on the majors, you know, doing our own distribution, but we're also working about four times as hard because we're in control of the distribution. We're in control of the promotion. Yeah. We have to go out there and do everything. Yeah. And so the idea is, you know, because look, you know, musicians are not businessmen by nature. I mean, you know, I mean, there's a glorious history of artists getting ripped off. Uh, (laughs) So, so how willing are you hard to work? How willing are you to work hard enough to uh, succeed uh, without all of these traditional distribution channels, including live music? So I don't know. It's it, yeah. it's interesting. So it's uh, the next five years are, are I think are going to go ways that we don't expect. And uh, uh, one last point: I'm not I'm not an expert. And I'm not expecting comments from you guys, but uh, non fungible tokens. Uh, that, yeah, and, and of course, Mike uh, has it come down here on our video feed, which you all can't see. But uh, I'm curious to see what happens here because Kings of Leon just released an album as an NFT. Uh, will these NFTs uh, be worth a shit? 
mean, and, and here's here's the other question: Do Kings of Leon still have fans? Seriously, Kings of Leon. <laughs> okay. I, no, I, I, yeah, back exactly. in the day when they were a groovy little southern garage rock band, but then yeah, when yeah, they yeah. got supernova mainstream, they ended up sounding like the worst combi- uh, like a combination of the worst tendencies of U2 and Journey. It was like beer commercial rock. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Beer commercial rock. Yeah, <laughs> yeah beer, beer, beer commercial rock. Uh, speaking of which, I guess that if they can't tour, we're gonna we're gonna see a lot of these acts uh, show up on beer commercials. Oh yeah, or <laughs> riding or riding beer or, or riding beer yeah. jingles. You know, you won't see a beer commercial. Pearl Jam, and I say and I say that because I'm kind of giving a preview, a little a uh, uh, a sneak preview of a future episode we might do regarding Pearl Jam. You know. For all our listeners out there, if you're listening, uh, there's a Pearl Jam-centric episode around the horizon. So if you're a Pearl Jam fan, gear up for that. Boy, we give all kinds of teasers and Easter eggs and scrambled (laughs) eggs and all kinds of stuff. Uh, So, Mike, uh, let me, uh, as a conclusory uh, uh, question here, so where are we now? I mean, kind of give us a, um, you know, we've been talking about a lot of this stuff in the dynamics and and in general, but to sort of give us the science, the science journalist report of the here and now of where we are with variants, vaccines, uh, you know, um, how close are we to herd immunity, et cetera, et cetera. So we are in a very precarious place. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I don't want to be too positive or too negative. I think okay. that there's a lot of excessive sentiment in both directions right now. Um, We are doing well at some things. We've got really well at protecting uh, senior citizens. We've got really good vaccine coverage uh, for the oldest and most vulnerable, which is terrific. Um, But it's really important to understand that even in states that are doing the best job right now with vaccines, only about 30% of the population has gotten a first shot. (laughs) And very few states have more than 20% uh, actually, I, don't, I, I think maybe one or only one or two states has even hit 20% uh, of fully vaccinated population. Most of them are more around the order of like between 10 and 15%. Um, that's not really very good. Um, no, not at all. And major league baseball plans have no lim- no fan limits in their state in their stadiums now. Well, the Texas well, Rangers that's, are going to be at 100% capacity. I mean, everything is opening. I mean, that, and it's a real problem. You know, in Philadelphia, everything is reopening. In, in New York, everything is reopening. In Boston, all, all, all the, you know, all the, you know the, the difference between blue states and red states at this point is more a matter of whether people are wearing masks or not. <laughs> but yeah, in terms of much. business yeah, practices. Yeah, you said, yeah, exactly. Things are starting to reopen. But like I said, down here, the, the Texas Rangers in, uh, uh, you know, up there in Arlington, Texas, I mean, they're, they're going to have 100% capacity on opening day next week which is scary. People need to be very seriously concerned. Um, you know, the, mm-hmm. the new um, B117 is what it's called. The, the, the variant that first showed up in, in the United Kingdom uh, is now on its way to becoming the dominant version of, of COVID in the United States. Uh, there are massive clusters of it in uh, the, the, mid, uh, the, the uh, Michigan, uh, you know, kind of the Great Lakes area uh, and in the Northeast. And uh, the good news is that the vaccines just 
seem to work pretty well against it so far. And as far as we know, mm -hmm. they, they do seem to protect against it. That's terrific. What's the name of the, uh, the bad what's news? What's the name of the new version of COVID again? It's 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 very fancy. It's B one one seven. Oh, it sounds like a robot. Yeah, very memorable. It doesn't just rolls off the tongue, right? Yeah, it sounds like a punk man from the early 80s. You know? but, no, it's really obnoxious, actually, because there's, you know, there's three major variants of concern right now that people are watching really closely. There's the Brazil one, the South Africa one, and the UK one. And they've all got these just ridiculous letter and number names that are you know impossible to keep straight until you've heard them 30 or 40 times. Uh, mm -hmm. And they, I, I keep hearing that they're trying to come up with some sort of more popularizable name that they can use to refer them. But uh, everything's either too cutesy or too technical. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Dick you, and you, Harry. Or, <laughs> yeah. You, you know, you know uh, we live in a world that's uh, uh, populated by marketing guys like me when we're worried about the branding of a strain <laughs> of coronavirus. You know? so, we want yeah. something that says deadly but sophisticated. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, we're going to build our brands. We're building our brand awareness on Twitter, you know. Yeah, so so the virus is going to have its own. Uh, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, 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 got, it's got mad followers, but the yeah. uh, no B one one seven is is it's, it's scary. It's it it spreads fa farther um, in terms of being more contagious. Uh, it is more dangerous. It, it does cause more severe disease. It does seem to have a higher death rate. Um, and uh, yeah, we just we we're, it and it it's everywhere now. I mean, it's kind of we we know where it is. You know. Yeah, the, the problem with all the data is you're always looking at like a snapshot from the past. So we know yes. where it was, you know, a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah. By now, we can safely assume that it's pretty much everywhere. So yeah, you know, I mean, think I would, about. I know, I know it showed up in New, New York, New Jersey first, and I know like northeastern Michigan is on fire now. And uh, amazingly, uh, even though Greg Abbott got rid of the mask mandates and went 100 percent capacity about four weeks ago, we still haven't blown up. With the exception of the, uh, the Panhandle is is yeah. warming up, uh, and then the last time I saw Miami was warming up too, which you know big shock, you know. But the next month is going to matter a lot. I mean, it's it's really scary. I mean, we, we've got you know anywhere between sixty and eighty percent of the, the U.S. population. I mean, uh, leaving aside kids who aren't eligible right now, but you know we've got we've got let's say uh, maybe seventy percent of the adult population is not protected right now in in, in any meaningful way. Um, mm -hmm. restrictions are going down. This more dangerous and contagious variant is spreading rapidly. There are other variants that are present in the U.S. They have not become dominant, but there's no reason to think that they could not. I mean, the, uh, the South African variant may be better at eluding vaccine protection. So I mean, it really is a race and people have to be smart. I mean, so I think my, my, you know, my parting thought is just don't let your guard down. Mm. If, you, if you if you if you've been vaccinated, keep wearing a mask. Be you'll know, be respectful and and you know convey yeah, a message of responsibility. And if you haven't been vaccinated, then you know don't don't let your guard down. This is really we could be back very easily into lockdowns again in late twenty twenty. And and, and that, and that would absolutely case. kill the freaking touring industry. That would just, just destroy it. Like it's. Well, I mean, they're going into lockdowns in Europe right now. I mean, Europe is in a terrible situation because their yes. vaccine coverage is, their distribution has been terrible. And so France is going back into lockdowns. Germany is on its way up. Sweden is on its way up. I mean, these these countries uh, are facing really severe next waves of COVID deaths and, and, and severe severe disease. And it's it could happen here just as easily. I mean, and yeah. every 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 new case creates new opportunities for new variants. I mean, people have to be really diligent and take this seriously.
And it, it yeah. sucks to be it sucks to be depressed when there's these great vaccines available and they're and they're becoming available. I mean, I think the Biden administration is doing a great job in terms of like really putting, uh, you know, putting the gas to the floor and getting those vaccines out there. Oh, right? absolutely. I mean, I, I read something this week that uh, by late May, we may be at surplus. I'd uh, love that. Be, that made me so happy if that was the case. <laughs> yeah, which, yeah, which, you know, it's a good I guess that's a quality problem to have. But yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I I don't know. I mean, and, and one question, actually, I think I read that this week that the CDC was saying that, that these vaccines may actually be preventing infection yeah. as opposed to keeping just, you not dead. It's actually preventing infection. Which is the best news. <laughs> no, they, they, they're, they're, they seem to be quite effective at that, too. Yeah, and uh, the, 80 or 90 percent lagging, you know, and again, it's like, you know, you, you know, I have some friends. It's like they they're very smart people, but they're not quite taking this seriously because it, it yeah. just comes down to selfishness and arrogance. Selfish, yeah. Selfishness, like, arrogance, and ignorance as well. Because you can be a very smart person and be ignorant. And remember, the, 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 the root word of ignorance is ignore. That you know, you know something's there, you don't want to pay attention to it. Look, I mean, the fatigue is real, and I get it, and I'm totally sympathetic to that. I mean, it's been a really shit year. I mean, it's been a really, really shit year. And uh, I totally understand the psychology of that about, you know, just being so exhausted and unable to find a fuck to give anymore. Uh, <laughs> and then yeah. if you add that to also, you know, that kind of mentality, well, I've been doing this, you know, I, it's kind of like I, you know, I drove home drunk four times. And I didn't get into an accident. I guess drunk driving isn't as big of a deal as all those, all those PSAs want me to believe, you know, yeah, <laughs> I mean, for 10 years, I haven't had cancer yet, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, well, hey, I'm, hey, I, I haven't gotten sick, you know, yeah. and, and those types of things. But again, and, and even the vaccinated people, and I, I've been preaching this on Facebook, my Facebook feed lately. It's, you know, look, I'm still planning to wear my mask through at least 2022. Um, if I don't love you, I'm staying the hell away from you. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, and so, you know, we just have to, we all have to continue to do our part. You know, it's uh, uh, the, the only way we're going to get the herd immunity is if we, you know, participate, you know, we, we this is the participation. And the important thing is, is it's not just, okay, yeah, I understand like when people say, you know, well, just just take care of yourself and forget about everything else and forget about everyone else. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, on a micro level, yeah, okay, that's good. I understand that. But on a macro level, society cannot function that way. And especially, no, especially no. when you're dealing with a pandemic, okay, well, that's killed so many people. So yeah. uh, over a million worldwide. So, I mean, it's not – you don't just have to be responsible for yourself. That's good. Okay, be responsible for yourself first. Yeah. Great. But you also have to be responsible for the people around you as well. It has to be both. And, and you can't be a selfish, ignorant asshole about it. You have to fucking grow up. <laughs> okay. Yeah. yeah. Grow well, up. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, well, I, I know, I mean, just, you know, you know, Jenny and I have been, I mean, we saw this coming in like late January of, uh, yeah, of uh, 20, you know, we were pretty attuned to this, but uh, for, at least for us, I mean, uh, our honeymoon in the first week of May is going to be in the Smoky Mountains, yeah. which may actually be the worst uh, area <laughs> in the country for like you know participation sport on this yeah. thing. But uh, but yeah, but you can keep you a know, distance. Like, you'll be outside. I mean, I think you'll you'll, yeah, you'll, you'll probably we'll, be yeah, fine. we'll be okay. But you know, just in terms of like picking up yeah. food and being you know, if we're going to go into Gatlinburg or Pigeon Forge or yeah. you know, we who knows? Maybe we'll get the Dollywood. 
uh, <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm a bigger Dolly person than she is. And, and, you know, yeah, I, you know, I, I see a brilliant songwriter and entrepreneur. She just sees tips. <laughs> Um, well, you, you, you know that you know that Dolly uh, helped get one of those vaccines out there too, right? Yeah, she, she donated a million dollars. Yeah, Dolly yeah. Parton's cool, man. Like, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm not a fan of her music that much, although she, her early record, her early singles are really good. But yeah, but she's cool. Everything yeah. I've read about her, she's like a super cool person. She's a legit superhero. Yeah, she is. Like, she is. Like, yeah, she is. She's. Yeah. She's an icon, a genuine. I icon. mean, she's interesting. Yeah, I mean, maybe she has a little bit of a dysmorphia or vanity issue or whatever. Well, professionalism. Yeah. You know, the idea is like you know. He, she said in an interview that, hey, if, you know, if there's a, a fire alarm in the hotel, I'm going to be ready with my wig and my makeup. And she's a big Led Zeppelin fan. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, she's, well, she's also been married to this. She's been married to the same dude for like 52 yeah, years, too. I mean, you know, oh, no kidding. I, didn't know, I actually didn't know that. Yeah. I don't even know what her husband looks like and, or anything, but she's been able to have this private life so yeah, okay, mr well, dolly is, is a, man, a man of mystery <laughs> yeah yeah he's 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 a, a he, he wears the coat of many colors in that house so. <laughs> oh anyway on that note i think that um uh yeah this has been really thoughtful and uh you know mike you've added a lot of color and informed our uh, our listeners here and so you know obviously we're we're really uh, grateful and you know obviously we're we're hopeful we're scared uh but It'll be great, even if, like we said, we're not going to be running out to buy those $35 t-shirts and hang around in shoegaze. Uh, we want to live in a world where people still do and, uh, you know, we can get more of those, you know, Don't Spill Live albums or, you know, some of these concert uh, uh, videos that Arturo reviewed last week. So, we, you know, we definitely want that to continue. So, uh, can continue doing what you're doing, you know, uh, on the, uh, on the COVID-19 beat and well, keeping the world informed and yeah, you're definitely our favorite inside source. The curmudgeon rock report will keep on rocking. If you do catch us where you catch all the podcasts, we know you love rock and roll as much as we do. Support us with donations at patreon.com slash curmudgeon rock. Find show notes and more on our Medium site. Join us next time as rock nerds smack you with knowledge. Stay rude, stay crude, stay sophisticated. Thank you for listening.